Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel Major. In this episode, I'm going to start to give you some insights into this safety at sea course as it's taught in US sailing and by the RYA. I actually had to go through this last weekend. Um, I'm going to go and do the Newport Bermuda race. And of course, with COVID, all these various different qualifications had expired and things need to be caught up on. And I found myself in the classroom for two days, which is always a great opportunity to review things that I think I know. But obviously, if you're out there doing this stuff all the time, it's very easy to allow a little bit of um, hubris to kind of find its way into what you're doing. I guess that's pretty human. You think, I've done this a thousand times. How many times have I put on a life jacket? How many times have I checked the safety gear? How many times have I taken this boat off the dock? And yet, of course, every single time we go, uh, the uh, statistics, the the likelihood, the the opportunity, the possibility is all reset, and it's a completely unique set of circumstances that you're going into that require your absolute focus to make sure that you don't make some basic error that then leads to injury or danger or just you know people getting really uncomfortable, really uh, upset. So it was great to be back in the classroom. We had an excellent teacher who was able to take us through the course content quite rapidly which was beneficial for the group that was in that room who were you know pretty pretty savvy as to what was going on but obviously as always with these kind of courses uh, sometimes you're going and you want to just get through it quickly Um, that definitely was where a lot of the people in that room were about sometimes you want people to do a really good job and really take you through it in every detail the funny thing is that when you're learning things for the first time you want the detail and when you are learning things for the 10th, 20th, 30th time, you want them to go through it fast. And yet, as I said, that that very human mistake of thinking, oh, I'm, I'm beyond this, you know, leads to the fall that then um, is a major, a major moment in your sailing career that you don't want to have. The day that the flares don't go off and you're in difficulty, the day that you can't find the the bungs in the in the bilge when suddenly things are leaking. If you'd gone through the details more slowly in your uh, safety at sea course, perhaps that detail would be right on your boat. So I thought what I'll do is jump in and start to provide these. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, a worthwhile kind of thing. A lot of people are getting back on the water now. They're getting back out sailing and they they should <laughs> should be in a position where you're okay to take input on safety stuff on the boat. I tend to find there's like two or three different, very easy to spot personalities for for skippers. Some of them, they're not even thinking about safety stuff. They just go out, they're kind of doing it by the seat of the pants and it, it often comes out good, no problem. There are those for whom it's a real detail and it's something they're really on top of. Absolutely, they've got all the gear, they know where it is and probably nothing ever goes wrong. Maybe they're the kind of people that don't allow themselves to you know, let the red flags start being hoisted. They don't allow the ducks to start lining up. They don't allow the issues to, to start to mount. And then there's another group, I guess, which I'd throw myself into who would definitely know all the details. Like I can I can and will be going through this in great detail. But is it at the front of my mind when I've done it so many times before? Probably, probably that puts me in almost the most dangerous group, doesn't it? Potentially, that puts me in the group where I'm pretty sure that I can use my own personal skills to avoid a situation that uh, you know it, it is catastrophic. I'm going to essentially use my higher level judgment to avoid situations that require 
uh, all this safety gear to come out. And then even if it does come out, I can probably solve my way around things. And it all becomes that operating the boat becomes more and more necessary for my boat to be operated by me and me alone, or I have to be there because I'm the only one that knows that, oh yeah, well, the that safe, that you know piece of safety gear there, it, it's not where it should be. It's over here because it rattles when we go over bumps or that um, little notice fell down. So now it's tucked down the back of here. And yeah, we haven't actually got um, 10 um, thermal protective units. We've only got eight, but you'll be able to use your waterproof, whatever it is. I'm going to start adding together all these little things, which in the end actually becomes almost as dangerous as the person who hasn't looked at the safety gear at all. So if you're in that third group, if you've done a lot of sailing, um, I'm going to go through the RYA syllabus. Um, obviously, US sailing has got a very comprehensive uh, uh, syllabus for all this stuff. The good thing is that the safety at sea course, the two day course, the hands on course, which is offered by US sailing, you can do the RYA safety at sea course, the sea survival course, and um, one is taken uh, in lieu of the other. The, the nitty gritty is, have you had your hands on the flares? Have you been in the pool with the life raft? Have you, you know, used your life jacket and gone over all these things? Um, I'm selecting the RYA one because I've got the book in front of me. It was given to me by my teacher, by my uh, instructor over the weekend. Um, I do like the RYA uh, documents. There's lots of really, really good uh, uh, drawings in here. Lots of things that make it very clear. And I feel that it's a book that you can jump into, pull some information out of, and then uh, and then get back on with your day. Sometimes when you're learning something like safety at sea, the feeling is I must sit down and I must learn this. Okay, I'm going to do five days safety at sea, and then I will know about safety. Where anybody who's read a book like Atomic Habits, something like that, anybody who knows about how to develop positive habits within their life will know that it'd be better to spend five minutes a day leafing through this book and start to slowly take on that information and kind of really know it um, than to think that sitting down and doing five days solid is suddenly going to give you all you need uh, a year from now, two years from now, when it's the middle of the night and things are getting difficult. So this is what I'd call like um, uh, a book for the heads. You know, you put it on the shelf by the uh, by the toilet and the boat. And uh, this, along with your tuning and rig guide, um, uh, basic sailing books, uh, inspirational tales of people voyaging. It's great to have those on the boat somewhere for people to pick over. Um, the toilet book, it, you know, it's almost a joke, isn't it? Put it next to the toilet and people read it. But interestingly, for the commercial stuff that we have to do on our boats, the safety cards which give you indication on how to signal for help and how to interpret the signals of others you know flare colors and planes waggling their wings and burning barrels of rags that uh, rags and oil that let you know of ships in disaster they're often um, encouraged to put those on the back of the door of the heads because you just sit there and you just look at it and it's just going in so for me this is a, a toilet book it's uh, one that should be there all the time and then if someone's really not getting into this stuff, if they're not uh, interested in it, you have to kind of ask the question, like, why would they like keep avoiding that? There was a time in the 70s before they had um, uh, seatbelt rules in the in the North America, in the US particularly, less than 14% of people would wear a seatbelt as part of their normal interaction with a car. And yet after the rules had been brought in that required people to, you know, 
clunk click every trip all that stuff within a couple of years people were doing it all the time it just became part of what's going on some people are very resistant to the idea of worrying about the safety gear because they know there's a financial commitment involved they may end up that they don't really know exactly what is meant to be on the boat that they don't have it they don't know how to use it it will open up an area of knowledge that they're not so hot on and certainly uh, a lot of uh, uh, sailors I've sailed with are resistant to admitting to areas that they don't know about. And, you know, it's the safety gear. Who cares? We're going racing. The racing's all about. And yet uh, each year, of course, there are um, accidents near misses and disasters which are related to safety gear not being where it is. So I don't want to make this into a super boring uh, subject. It's not meant to be that. There's uh, loads to get through in this little book. It's uh, 16 or 17 chapters uh, here I can start going through it in sections we already read books if you haven't already uh, go over and check out the rare nautical reads podcast which I also do we're on our fifth or sixth book there we're reading a book at the moment called the cruise of the hippocampus from just after the first world war very very interesting book so I've been reading books which are um, uh, non-fiction they are storybooks but they are non-fiction storybooks why don't we read something that's a textbook and I'll try and draw out some of the learning using this as a as a structure for it. So we can separate this out over a number of um, episodes. And then with a lot of the things on the Mariner podcast, in the end, when we get a little bit further down the line, you'll see that there'll be a playlist, which is um, a playlist of the High Winds podcast. There's a playlist of the Safety at Sea podcast. There's a, a playlist of the ABC, and then people will be able to consume it in that way. It all seems a bit erratic at the moment, but... Uh, well, we'll get there one day, won't we? So let's uh, let's jump in. Now, this is a copyrighted document. Uh, the exact tome that we're looking at is the RYA Sea Survival Handbook, officially supporting the RYA Sea Survival Course. Its um, uh, author, or certainly the person on the front of it, is Keith Colwell. And um, it says it's the second edition, and the ISBN number is 9781906435. Nine six seven. So if you want to follow along, it's easily available from the RYA or Amazon or all good bookshops. Um, so let's uh, see. I'm going to quote. Uh, well, there's, there's something here. The foreword is by Mike Golding. Mike Golding is a very famous solo and crewed round the world sailor, winner of the um, the Challenge uh, Races business, the Challenge event that used to run in the 90s with those big steel 67 foot boats uh, taking amateur crews west around the world. He then went on to a uh, incredibly um, successful career as a solo sailor in the open 60s and it's just expanded and expanded his career since then so um, to, I'm going to whenever I'm reading things from a copyrighted source I'm going to indicate that it's a quote I don't want to just sound like one of those guys off YouTube but it is actually kind of necessary I should get a uh, cease and desist warning so let's read the, the foreword from Mike Golding quote sea survival training saves lives it is essential knowledge for the modern offshore skipper the stark fact is, if things do go dramatically wrong on board, this knowledge can save lives. Training for the worst eventuality will make you better prepared and it will give you the confidence to know that you have planned for every conceivable circumstance when you leave port. The sea can be a hostile and brutal place for the ill-prepared. You don't need to be in the Southern Ocean, the English Channel or anywhere away from easy access to shore can quickly become just as dangerous and hostile if things go badly wrong on board your boat. When it comes to survival, preparation is everything and all good preparation begins with solid information and sound practical training. 
This book highlights the importance of having the correct safety equipment and will also give you the knowledge of how and when to use it. Armed with this information and the right equipment, every eventuality on board, no matter how severe, can be met with the determination and conviction that is essential mark of every survivor. Mike Golding, end quote. So I say I'm not going to like quote this verbatim, but I think when you've got someone like Mike Golding, who's a real heavyweight in this stuff and has been into some of the most remote and dangerous parts of the world uh, on a boat and often alone, there is a different attitude to safety that um, starts to prevail. Suddenly it starts to become serious. And um, he's absolutely right in the way that that first couple of sentences is put together. Sea survival training saves lives. If you're involved in some kind of activity and there's one thing you can do that saves lives, not just like gets an extra point or, you know, saves you from a foul like in basketball or rugby or something. But if you're involved in an activity where loss of life, loss of limb, maiming, danger, damage is part of it, if there's some course of action that you can take which is going to limit that, it'd be ridiculous not to take it. And anybody who's trying to justify that it's not important to have this or that piece of equipment on board for an absolute categorical fact has never been through the circumstances that require those bits of in those bits of equipment if you're with someone who's like yeah we've got some flares down there you know and they may or may not be in date they may or may not be right they've never had to fire a flare uh, in a really dangerous situation if someone's um, not getting their life raft serviced and they've never had to get into a life raft then it, it all kind of makes sense they don't realize how important it is what you know what what's in front of them what these pieces of equipment are about they're just an expensive um irritating part of the equipment on board because i say irritating because that means anybody that steps onto the boat can see if you've got the safety gear can see if it's marked up it's one of those things it's kind of like cleaning it's very easy for a non-sailor who's done just a little bit of study like this book or listening to this podcast to understand like is this a safe boat or is this not a safe boat um the book, as he says, highlights the, the, the importance of having the correct safety equipment and gives you the knowledge of how and when to use it. It's great to have the equipment on board, but it's even better to know how to use it. And a lot of times, some of the things you need to do with life-saving gear, it's a little bit counterintuitive. You don't jump in the life raft and start glugging down the, the water and the food that's on board because you might be in that life raft for three or four days. There's a better way to engage in what comes next when you've got into a life raft. Um, sending off your flares. Don't get super tight on the flares and then refuse to send up more than one at once because actually, as we'll learn later on, it's more likely that a flare is seen by another vessel as out of the corner of the eye, was it, wasn't it? It's a bit difficult to know. And if another one doesn't go up shortly thereafter, there's no way of confirming it. They may just mark it in the log and keep going. So you don't end up getting tight with flares. You actually use them uh, in the correct um, timing at the correct time um, in almost what might seem a little bit wasteful if you are viewing this from the wrong angle, like who, you know, we're going to, these things are expensive. We don't want to use them all at once. It's crazy. So um, the other one I'm going to read is the introduction from Keith Colwell uh, and, and uh, or certainly the first part of it, because I think he, as the author of the book, lays out very, very clearly here what they're trying to achieve. As I say, we won't be getting into just quoting everything thereafter, but this is the, the person in Mike Golding that they've selected to give the foreword. And then the author himself, I think, should have a little voice. So, quote, boating is one of the safest leisure sporting activities However, in any sport that pushes us to the edge of our abilities, there's always a chance of accident or injury. Going to sea brings with it unique challenges and is arguably one of the most difficult environments in which to survive. 
Unlike survival on land, where resources are more readily available and where the surroundings are often more benign, the sea offers us little help. When disaster strikes at sea, we may not, without assistance, even rest and take a moment to gather our thoughts. He continues, Wherever you are, the primary requirements for survival are protection from the environment, location, i.e. can we work out where we are, communication so that we can call for help, hydration, i.e. water, without water we can expect to live for little more than three to ten days depending on the climate, and nutrition, food, sufficient food for energy and longer term survival. Without food, our life expectancy is approximately 20 to 40 days, depending on how much energy we expend. Because the sea provides us with little, our ability to survive depends on how well we have prepared our ingenuity, our training and our will. Preparation, therefore, is the key. It makes us better able to cope with an emergency. It can reduce its severity and it will significantly increase our chances of survival, end quote. So I think within that we can we can reconnect with the basis of what's going on with safety gear and safety training. It's not about trying to have the neatest set up in the fleet. It's not about trying to jump through the hoops to get into the race, although that's often how it ends up being. It's about taking a moment to pause, look around in the boat and reassess like if this goes wrong, how wrong is it going to go? That's the thing. And I think that's the thing I've been learning from reading the books over on Rare Nautical Reads. A lot of them, of course, they are very exciting stories. There's not really anybody writing uh, stories about their cruising, which is, uh, we went from port to port. Everything was fine. There's bits of that, and there's lots of philosophical insight to be taken from being out on the ocean and interacting with the environment and the boat and challenging yourself. But oftentimes, they do get involved in pretty hairy situations and uh, certainly with the books I'm reading, which are all uh, older books where the copyright's available, they have very little safety gear available. There is very little um, uh, knowledge about uh, navigation um, in that the, there's little to be gained from it. Okay, we have a position. That's it. We don't know very much else. There's there's nothing to be taken about the meteorology. There's no way of instantly updating position. There's no way of instantly communicating. Nothing. All of those abilities come from modern technology, from equipment on board our boats. And if we don't know how to use them, if we haven't prepped beforehand, if we haven't kept up with maintenance, if we haven't got the right attitude towards it, there's little that we can do. The thing that they did have back in the day, which seems to be a little bit different, is that a lot of the uh, books I'm reading are people who had been in either the First World War, the Second World War, or just had a, a tough outlook from having done military service from their background. They perhaps have more easily to hand a strong um, spirit that is able to fortify them in difficult circumstances. And um, if you've listened to this podcast more than like three episodes, I've probably mentioned Outward Bound. And the, the thing about Outward Bound is it was started during the Second World War um, to provide training for the young merchant sailors, all of whom at that time were male, um, going out onto the ocean. These are people who are like 16, 17, 18 years old, who were going out on ships into the middle of the North Atlantic, particularly, or the Baltic, or wherever they were, Mediterranean, um, and being shot at by by uh, by by submarines, by planes coming from the sky, by other ships. They were involved in these incredibly harsh environments and yet when they went into the lifeboats from whatever happened to the boat it was often the older 
men who were able to survive, although their bodies might technically be more sort of frail than the young 18, 19 year olds, um, they were able to survive and the younger kids weren't. And um, Kurt Hahn, who started out with Bound, identified that those younger people needed to kind of like strengthen and reinforce their spirit. I don't mean religious, I just mean that their inner workings, the part of them which is built to survive, was not developed enough in such a young person and they were unable to survive in the difficult circumstances of being in a lifeboat, wet, probably burnt, highly traumatized in a lifeboat in the middle of the North Atlantic. There had to be something else. We can't all necessarily go on some outbound course and you know go hiking around the place and, uh, and, and, and climbing and kayaking and rafting and all the things that Outward Bound would do to kind of like give you a, a, a taste of difficulty and, and strenuous uh, exercise and strenuous circumstances that push you to, your, to, to learn more about yourself. We can't just all go and do that. What we can do, though, is we can get involved in safety training. We can look at the equipment and we can start to play the what if game. OK, what if this happens? How would that feel? Where would I be? What equipment would I need? What information would I need to uh, mentally be able to think, okay, I can make it through here. If you jump into the dinghy with no equipment as the boat sinks and now you're in a dinghy under the baking sun of the, the Pacific or the Caribbean or wherever it is that you've been cast adrift and you've got nothing in the boat, I think that's a difficult mental state to go into the boat with. I think that you're putting yourself in a situation where you may not survive quite as easily. If you've got the training, if you play the what if game, at least you hunker down and you can go through your inventory. Okay, I've got this, I can communicate, I've got flares, I've got cover, I've got moisture you know, that I can get hold of. I can, I've got a little hydro still, a little uh, solar still here, or I've got little water packages, or I've got a little um, reverse osmosis desalinator set. Like you've got equipment, you know how to use it, but it's not just having it and using it. It's the mental situation that is strengthened by um, the safety equipment that we've got uh, in the modern world now. So we're going to uh, jump into chapter one here. It's an introductory chapter um, lots and lots of um, fantastic uh, illustrations in this one and a little bit tricky for, you know I can't I can't read the stuff it's the other way's uh, book but we can we can look at the titles we can look at some of the words so I can quote some things and hopefully we can um, we can go through this I hope that this can be some kind of uh, uh, study aid and uh, certainly psychologically put you in the right mind when you're doing doing your uh, training so part one of the uh, RYA's Sea uh, Survival Handbook, as uh, chapter one, before you leave. And of course, the safety of the voyage starts before you ever leave the dock. Getting the boat um, prepared, having all the safety equipment on board is something this book's going to take us through in the next couple chapters. But before you leave, it's, I think, recognizing that the environment that you're about to go into is different from the land. That sounds kind of ridiculous, but I often explain this to crews that come on board by saying that the ramp of consequences is much steeper at sea. Um, if you imagine you're stepping out from the curb, uh, a car clips you. It's not like a very serious uh, accident, but you're clipped, you're down, your legs are sore, your head's sore, you've got a few lacerations and contusions. Um, you're on the floor, you don't really know what happened. The car's stopped, the owner's jumped out, people are around you. What do you think is going to happen next? Probably somebody's going to call for a doctor or they're going to have medical training. They're going to put you into something like the recovery position if they believe there's no mechanism for a back injury. They're going to try and make you somewhat comfortable. They're going to put pressure onto wounds. They're going to um, 
call for the ambulance, right? So that's going to give you a big psychological boost when you hear that this uh, machine, which has all of this medical equipment on it and trained personnel, is now on its way to where you are. And even if it's going to be an hour, it, it's going to be easier to get through that hour than just lying there, as our ancestors did after an accident for hundreds of thousands of years, just going like, okay, do I feel like I can get over this or not? Because, you know, if you got... I know if you fell out of a tree uh, 10,000 years ago and you're lying on the ground, you've got a massive contusion, uh, you've got a big problem. You may well get an infection, you may well die. And your psychological uh, makeup at that moment when you hit the ground is going to kind of dictate how this is going to go. Some people might want to curl into a ball and, and die. Others may feel like I can I can get over this and, and they will get over it. But that's taken away somewhat now. We Now we know, okay, there's people standing around and uh, someone's making me comfortable and the ambulance is on its way and then the police will turn up and then I'll be taken to the, the hospital and we can really escalate this up to MRIs and CT scans and surgeons and like, my God, what a huge amount of infrastructure is there. That's got to give you some confidence when you've been injured to know, okay, it might be your first time going through it, but you know it's there. Okay, now what do we got at sea? It would be very, very foolish to think that the answer to this is something like, well, I've got an EPUB, I've got an AIS thing in my life jacket, I've got uh, a life raft, I've got flares. Those things are not the same kind of gateway to salvation that the ambulance coming is. Just the very nature of the sea, just being out on the water, if you stop moving as you lie in the water, if you don't have any equipment with you, you sink. You literally go from wet to dead within minutes. Okay, so if you just sat there as a guy, particularly with, uh, you know, the kind of density of, of muscle and bone structure I've got and not very much um, body fat on me, if I don't have a life jacket on and I stop moving after the accident of me being hit by the boom and falling over the side of the boat, um, I then die. Now, if I've got a life jacket on, then it's down to a kind of water temperature and how badly I'm injured, but that life jacket's going to really help. If the life jacket's got a light on it and retroflective tape on it and a spray hood and I can get the spray hood on, and maybe if I've got an AIS thing in my life jacket and the boat's got a Dan boy and we've got a, can you see how suddenly we can have a more gentle ramp of consequences, but it is absolutely essential that the equipment, that the training is all there. I could get clipped by the car and fall on the ground and the car actually just speeds on by. No one comes to help me. No ambulance comes. And it's like, maybe if I'm just got little bangs and bruises and not too much else, I can just, um, I can kind of make my own way home. I'll kind of be okay. But that's clearly never going to happen with something happening at sea. Now, my intention is not to... Um, induce some kind of state of uh, of nervousness or anxiety unnecessarily about what's going on at sea it's still the friend that it's always been to us but it's a, a benign force which can immediately turn into something completely different to deny the reality of the fact that you need equipment that you need training that you need awareness that you need that equipment to be maintained and be of a certain standard to deny that is to deny the reality of what's going on around you and that's a very dangerous person to be out on the water with. So let's dive in here. They're talking about the fact that uh, at the very beginning of this uh, process of going out onto the water, it might be very intelligent to take a look at the weather first. Take a look at the weather, take a look at the tides. Now a lot of people will be in an area where the tides don't really affect them. It's not that big a deal if you're in the Caribbean and the tide only goes up by a foot and back down by a foot each day, then this is not a major factor. 
If you're living somewhere like the UK or here in uh, eastern Canada, tide ranges are a massive effect and tide uh, flows can drag you onto the rocks, drag you onto the beach, send you out to sea, um, make a boat which is uh, tootling around without an engine into a very dangerous prospect if the wind dies and the, the current starts to take you or rather the tide starts to take you. Knowing where the tidal state is is uh, very important for many sailors. For those who sail regularly in areas like you know maybe the Great Lakes or if you're on rivers or if you find yourself inside the coast in inland coastal waterway in the US a lot, the tides become something you don't really think about. And then you suddenly go to sea and you, it's something that you do need to contend with. Are you still in the state of mind? Do you have a checklist that still um, gets you to tick off like, okay, have I looked at the tides? I've told this story before, but I can remember sailing from the UK to France, something which you know UK and French sailors are very, very uh, au fait with, no problem there. It's only a couple of miles really across the uh, channel. I got to a position just off of Cherbourg, no, not just Cherbourg, where was it? Yeah, Cherbourg, and I was uh, calling home and uh, I stood on deck looking around on the satellite phone. Yeah, I can see the harbour, yeah, I can see the, uh, you know, the, the, the towers and the, the, the parts of Cherbourg here in some kind of detail. And then I went below to kind of get some detail out of a book or a piece of paperwork. And I was down there for about an hour in total. Um, and when I came back on deck, Cherbourg was gone. It was completely gone. It was like gone out of sight. I couldn't see the buildings anymore. I couldn't see the spires. couldn't see the masts of the boats. couldn't see anything. Thank God, the way that the tide had uh, uh, thrust me, there was nothing down water from me that was going to create a problem. Now, that came about because I had been doing a lot of ocean sailing and I'd been doing a lot of stuff in the Caribbean, um, all of which requires me to not really consider the tides very much. It wasn't like built into me to do that. Now, as an ocean navigator, before I had stopped the boat, put down the sails and decided to make a phone call, I looked all around the boat and I knew that there was miles and miles and miles of um, open water. And of course, the chart plotter has still got the safety depth for the alarm and all that kind of stuff, as does the depth sounder on the boat. There's things there which are there to stop me going aground. But I hadn't, I hadn't been in the habit of thinking about tide. And now I was in a situation the tide had moved me in a way that I really wasn't expecting, woke me back up. So for me, setting off on that little jaunt from the UK to France, obviously I should have been thinking about the fact there's a massive tidal stream that runs up and down the channel. How is it going to affect this voyage? I had forgotten to do that and got myself a little bit of a... I got a little shock from it because I realized, wow, I really missed something very, very basic there. But also the boat that I'm on, the Open 60, it only motors at four knots and there was like five knots of tide against me. So it took me flipping hours to get back to Sherbrooke. So an irritation, but um, had it swept me onto the rocks, my goodness. So the other one that comes with this, of course, is the weather. The weather is is everything in sailing. It's uh, it's the thing that propels the boats. It makes happy memories, unhappy memories, challenging memories. I always say to people when they're like, hey, do you remember I came sailing with you? Do you remember this thing happened? I'll always say, okay, was it daytime or nighttime? Was it good weather or bad weather? And at least I can kind of coordinate roughly what the environment was and then try to remember the um, the particular detail of the event that someone's talking about. I've got a few too many stacked up now and the uh, the system of um, referencing them is getting a little bit hazy, but the weather is the make or break for everything that happens on the boat. Now, if you've got a very competent skipper, a competent crew and a competent boat, they will feel that it's easy to get into. No, they will 
they will naturally start to fall into a habit of not really worrying that much about the weather. That sounds crazy, but if I think about my own circumstance, when we go to the start line of these big races, there is a possibility that the race organizers will call off the start if it's like extremely bad conditions. But really, if the wind's zero, they're going. If it's 20, they're going. If it's 40, they're going. If it's 50, maybe they're thinking about calling it off. If it's five Celsius, minus five Celsius, plus 50, it's all happening. And of course, the race organizers will always say the ultimate decision to sail is on the person in charge. It's on the vessel itself. It's on the skipper of the vessel. Um, but if you become very uh, happy with ocean navigation, heavy conditions, it's very easy to go to a start line of event and think, ah, you know, do whatever comes, comes. We've got all the kit. Now, that's fine. But that kind of relaxed attitude probably comes with have you checked the equipment recently? Have you done the safety inspection recently? Have you gone through the training with your crew? I'm lucky in a way that I do a lot of sail training. So we're forever doing safety briefs before we leave on any of the Spartan events that we do. Have a look at Spartan Ocean Racing to see what we're doing this summer. We're going to Iceland and the Faroe Islands and Norway and all that kind of stuff. Each one of those events starts with a three-day training. And the first day of it is just alongside doing safety gear and how to be on the boat safely. Second day is looking at uh, man overboard training and sails up and down and reefing and all those kind of things that we might need to do. And then the third day is bringing that together, going on a longer voyage, a continuous voyage, and then training and going through what it is that we might need to do in the event of an emergency. Running a company where we take amateur sailors or even non-sailors out onto the water, safety gear, safety training is a massive um it's a, it's a massive area of what we do. It's literally one of our sales. Uh, one of the things we need to be aware of in sales, it's almost like one of our sales tactics is like, how safe is this? Um, Spartan as a company is now starting to move away from doing as much racing as we did before. But that means that the onus on the safety gear being right comes more on to me. Yes, we have our commercial coding. Yes, we have to have all our checklists done before we start an event, all that kind of stuff. But without a race organizer to come and inspect the boat, it comes onto us. So I'm then in the same situation as anybody that's going out onto the water. And um, I would be uh, the first one to admit that it would be easy to make a mistake. The, the mistake of hubris, the mistake of thinking that I'm kind of above um, having to check the gear again. Do we have spare batteries for the flashlights? Of course we do. They're in the tub around the back. Have we got the motoring cone and have we got the... Yes, of course we have. We've always got it. But what, you know, are the flares in date? Uh, is the EPIRB in date? Is it correctly mounted in its float-free uh, casing? Is the life raft correctly? There's loads and loads of details which should be easy to miss. So I'm very aware now that um, the, the nature of my company changing puts me closer to the point where no one's looking over my shoulder on a regular basis. I've got to be sure, yes, I've checked the tide. Yes, I've checked the weather. Yes, I've checked the safety gear again and again and again. Um, as it says here in the book, um, quote, uh, for longer voyages, study the weather patterns for the seas you're planning to cross and choose the time of year that provides the most favorable wind, currents and sea conditions, end quote. If you're going out on the lakes, your safety brief is going to be different from if you're crossing an ocean. There's going to be more happening um, in someone's passage plan, which is I'm going to cross the Atlantic, then I'm going to cross uh, Lake, uh, Lake Superior or something. 
and yet the risk of danger is still the same, right? It, you, you turn over on Lake Superior, turn over in the middle of the Atlantic. It's kind of the same when you go into the water. Maybe the ramp of consequences is not quite as serious, but if you haven't got the safety gear uh, and you're out of sight of land on a Great Lake, you're out of sight of land on the ocean, it's the same thing, right? If you've not got the safety gear, it's looking pretty bad. So let's continue on here. They, they start out by discussing... Uh, the safety briefing. Safety briefing is very, very important. It's an opportunity to um, set the tone of what's going to happen on the boat that day. How many people go sailing and do a safety brief? If you go sailing on your own, do you need to have a safety brief? Mm, no, you don't need to brief yourself. That would seem kind of silly, right? You go out and do a safety brief and yet you're on your own, you're almost in the most risky circumstance. So what would the safety brief that you would do for yourself look like if you were really honest? If you went down to your boat and said, I'm going to do a safety brief for the crew here, and I'm both the person doing the instruction and the person receiving the instruction, would there be certain bits of equipment that you'd say, well, we haven't got that, but we get by? Would there be certain bits of equipment you'd say, well, it's a bit old, but it seems to work? is the stuff you'd say, well, oh, I need to replace that. It's out of date. How many things around your boat would show you up if you were doing a safety brief? Would you be strong enough to do it for yourself and admit where the gaps are? Or are you just kind of like locked into a particular way of looking at what goes on in your boat? Little things like um, fire extinguishers. If you're stood at the galley and, a, and a, a chip pan fire, a grease fire, an oil fire, whatever, something drips, there's oil on fire right now, right now can you think about where you have to reach to get the nearest fire extinguisher on your boat if you've got that strap around the back of you how long does it take to get the strap off i learned this weekend that a fire that's burning in um, fiberglass with the resin starting to burn will double its area every couple of seconds so it's just getting going on the pan and then you're starting to unclip the thingy and now the oil's run down the back because the, the stove's gimbled a little bit and now the area around the back of the stove is on fire it's not too much of a problem because it's all just kind of in the area where the stove is but now it's starting to lick against the roof and the roof is a plastic board and light fittings and all the rest of it now it's starting to catch there every piece of commercial safety training i've done for fire uh, with professional firefighters doing it um, they are always trying to impress upon the non-professional firefighters how fast fire spreads so as you think about it now, in your galley, where's the fire blanket? Where's the fire extinguisher? Where's the next fire extinguisher? Because those little couple pound fire extinguishers, they're not going to really do that much unless they put out the fire immediately. Um, where's the second one? Where's the third one? Is it up inside the cupboard, like out of way because it looks better, but it's trickier to get to? These sorts of things are involved in giving a safety brief. Giving a safety brief to your family you maybe you would or wouldn't do one for yourself would you do one if there was just like your partner coming on board you're looking across at your partner now and you're thinking about that person you know do you know exactly how to get them out of the water there's some very interesting videos online which show crews trying to get um, uh, a crew member that's gone into the water out of the water and they bring the boat alongside quite nicely and then spend like two or three minutes with two or three people on the side deck trying to get an unresponsive cold heavy person out of the water you're going to do a safety brief for you and your partner and you come to the bit of well we do the man overboard i bring the boat alongside you and then i get you out of the boat are you willing to admit the reality of the fact that you can't get the person out of the water without aid have you ever had to do that you can sure you can go and 
lift that person up, maybe just off the ground for a couple of seconds, or you can pick them right up in the air, but can you drag their cold, wet, uh, completely saturated body out of the water in cold conditions when the boat's dragging sideways and the sails are flapping? Have you got a method for getting them out? How would your safety brief look to that person? Would they start to realize there was gaps in your plan? What about your family? What about kids? What about if one of the kids goes off the back? Is that life jacket they put on correctly sized for them? Do you have a method of instantly pressing something on the boat to mark the location? What are you going to put in the water to mark the location? Because if you get more than half a mile away as you reach away from them, you're not going to be able to see your kid in the water. These are the realities of it. And what people tend to do is it's so far out of the everyday that this something like this might happen. They don't deal with it in reality. They don't do safety briefings because to do the safety briefing would actually show what it is that's wrong. How many people would have to be coming on your boat before you felt that you should do a safety brief? How untrained and how uh, unknowledgeable would they have to be before you'd think, no, it's totally fine. Just stick them on the boat. It'll be fine. Basically, it is fine as long as nothing happens. How confident are you that nothing's going to happen? Um, it says here on the, the second uh, page here, uh, under the safety brief area, quote, are your crew familiar with boating? Is there anything you should know about them? Can they swim? Do they have medical problems? And you need to be aware of uh, sorry, that you need to be aware of such as asthma, diabetes, or angina. As a skipper, their safety is your responsibility, end quote. So we're only a couple pages in now and we get into all sorts of worrying words like responsibility, avoiding hubris, giving safety briefs, how much do you love your kids? You know, it's that, it's that kind of level of thing. Again, I'm not here to uh, try and make it that it's a super scary, super awful place. I love sailing. I love going sailing. I want to take my family sailing as soon as he's big enough, little Isaac can get out on the water. But I'm not going to just go and expose him to loads of risk. I'm not going to do that. I want to know that I've got these bases covered and then I can be relaxed. You can't be relaxed if you haven't got the bases covered. That's just complete denial. Okay, so we go on now and they've got a, a safety checklist. I don't think it's a problem for me to quote the safety checklists without getting uh, into trouble because uh, a checklist for safety on a boat is a checklist for safety on a boat. Let's run down through it. Um, the first mate, you need to have a plan of succession. If something happens to you as the, the skipper going over the side of the boat, who is taking over? Now, if you look around and like no one can take over and the entire thing is based on the fact that you can stand at the helm, you better have done your uh, medical very recently. You better be eating healthy. You better put down those cigarettes and alcohol. You better not trip. You better be clipped on. You better, there better be a zillion things that absolutely ensure that you're there to do what it is that you're meant to do. Because if you get it wrong, those people that have come on the boat with you, now they're in a very, very difficult position. This would be the equivalent of me taking a trip in a light aircraft and then the pilot has a heart attack at the yoke. It's possible. It's happened. What's the chance of me getting the plane down on the ground? Well, away from a Marvel film, away from Liam Neeson once again saving his daughter. I'm pretty sure those Taken films are just examples of bad parenting. But it's, it's not going to happen like that. What's going to happen is there's a hard uh, wall that you're going to run up against, which is the fact that they just don't know how to operate the engine. They just don't know how to maneuver the boat. They don't know that those flappy sails just need to have the line pulled in. You're not going to be shouting instructions from the water. You're not going to be shouting instructions from um, being doubled over with uh, uh, angina or something on the side of the boat. So who is going to take over and how much does that person uh, know? The first mate, even if it's a kind of, um, you know, a badge for a day, is someone you still have to nominate, even if there's two of you. 
clearly the other person is going to be the one that takes over. Now, how much do they know? Next on the list is life jackets. It can't be underestimated how important your life jacket is. Um, I don't think it's a, a terrible thing for me to, to say, but when I went to the pool to do the uh, training, um, of the seven people in the group that I did, mine was the only life jacket that went off. Yep, just to put that in perspective, nobody else's life jacket went off. So those people did that training that day and they learnt, well, my life jacket doesn't work. <laughs> okay, and it was like bobbins not completely screwed in, um, the the uh, cylinder not completely screwed in, so it just off-gassed and didn't completely inflate the life jacket. Now, every single one of them was able to quickly blow up their life jackets with the manual inflate uh, tube, no problem, so they would have survived. But had they gone into the water, the functionality of the life jacket to save them um, automatically did not work. And I'd like to say that my Team O back toe life jacket worked absolutely fantastically and in fact was inflating. I jumped off a, uh, I think it's two meter high uh, dive board. And before I even broached from the water, my life jacket was half inflated. The instructor indicated that with older equipment, you'd be expecting to come to the surface and then count uh, like count two, count three, count four, and around three, four, the life jackets normally go off as the water gets into the uh, salt bobbin or the paper mache bobbin that holds back the um, activation pin on the life jacket. Mine was going off immediately. It's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm wonderful. It's just because that piece of equipment gets checked all the time as part of what Spartan's doing. And as I jumped in, I had zero doubts that that thing was going to go off. I don't know if the other people in the group had zero doubts when they went in. I'm guessing next time they jump in the water with that life jacket on, they maybe have some doubts there. Life jackets also, of course, now come with the built-in harness. No one is doing the separate harness and separate life jacket anymore. It's all built in together. So I know that my life jacket can allow me to stay connected to the boat. That's a functionality, particularly with my back toe life jacket, which um, I really, really value because... Falling over the side of the boat and getting dragged forwards is not a good option. Knowing that I can flick myself onto my back and be towed backwards by my particular setup is very, very good. I know that my life jacket can allow me to be seen at night. It's got a stroboscopic um, LED light or strobing LED light, should I say, that can run for like 40 hours. I know that it's got retroflective tape. I know that it's yellow, so it's easy seen. I know that it's got the crotch strap, so it can't easily be pulled over my head. There's a lot going on with a life jacket. And now these days, of course, you can have your AIS uh, man overboard beacon in your life jacket, and that can um, give you even more uh, chance of being picked up by your boat. And if you're really going for it, you can have a personal locator beacon, which we'll get into later on, and that can be on the waistband of your life jacket. And then uh, you can get that and, and hold it up and, and even have a satellite connect with you. So a life jacket becomes, it's almost like they used to call them life preservers, right? Life preservers, like it preserves your life. I think that's a good title for them. The If you had like some super cool piece of like equipment that you could put on that was a life preserver for everyday life on the land, what would that look like? It would have like compasses and uh, internet connection and uh, I know like hydration packs and some radar system that cars couldn't clip you. Or, I, I don't know. What would their life preserver on the land look like? I think Homer Simpson would be good at designing something like that. Life preserver on the sea needs to keep your head above the water. So it's going to be something that goes around your neck and inflates. It needs to allow you to be seen at night. So it's going to have a light. It's going to have a crotch strap so you can't be pulled out. It's going to have a very particular kind of setup 
And that's what we have the opportunity to interact with. We get to have those life preservers. It's not that we have to wear a life jacket. It's that we get to put on a life jacket. And so if we make one potentially very small mistake in our entire sailing career, it doesn't become the strap line for our obituary. Yeah, he was a great guy, well well loved by family, friends and co-workers. Um, seems like he fell off his boat at sea. You got a life preserver on, a life jacket as we call it today. Your life is preserved and I think that's why it comes in at number two in the, the RYA's checklist here. You know, I'm very aware as I'm going into this, we're already like 47 minutes into this. I make no bones. You know what? We might not even get through chapter one here. I'm going to do about an hour, hour and a half, something like that. And I'm just going to talk and talk and talk because if you uh, can stand listening to this, <laughs> then you'll know more, won't you? <laughs> okay, next bit. It says uh, harnesses and safety lanyards. Well, again, the RYA... Is covering all bases there. Life jackets these days have it built in. If you have a separate harness and a safety lanyard, otherwise called a safety tether, or uh, some people call it, they'll call that bit the harness, which is kind of in- incorrect, the bit that connects you to the boat. Um, if it is separate from it, go and buy a new one because they don't make those anymore. And that means the one that you've got is super old. And it means that the stitching is at a state of... Uh, uh, degradation that you don't understand that you don't know that you can't you can't empirically calculate you can't know how strong the stitching is on a harness which was you know your father's or you've had it on the boat for 30 years or something which is what it would need to be almost to buy one like that if you've got a separate harness and life jacket you're in denial you need to go and get a new one all that equipment is too old to be useful now flares yes absolutely flares We're going to do a lot more about flares. Um, I got the opportunity during my course, of course, to to fire a flare. We did uh, hand flares at the dock and and, and we had a fantastic instruction from our uh, teacher about uh, how to operate them, how to stay safe, how to use them, all the rest of it. I learned some things on that one as well, which I'll share with you. Flares are the opportunity to communicate when you haven't got any other way of doing it. It's one of the most traditional ways of doing it, and they've been pretty regulated and understood literally since the sinking of the Titanic. When we get onto flares, I'll talk about that a little bit more. The Titanic going down in um, 1912 was the uh, starting point of the SOLAS regulations. SOLAS, S-O-L-A-S, the safety of life at sea. We all know, we've all seen the film, we know about the situation with the lifeboats. They just had like cork preservers, but there were lots of other things going on on the Titanic as well. It was the first time that SOS was used. They used to use CQD. Um, SOS was used, um, the flares that they were putting out, they had used a range of different flares in the past, but the Titanic incident highlighted the need for continuity um, with flare systems and in the construction of flares and that kind of stuff. A lot of safety stuff came in at that point. So um, I'll I'll fast forward a little bit here. It's going to come up later in the book, I know. But there is a little like ship's wheel logo that you'll see on the side of flares and a lot of safety equipment, which complies with these SOLAS regulations, the safety of life at sea. If it doesn't have the wheel mark on the side of it, particularly with flares, it's crap. Get rid of it. You don't need it, right? The ones that you buy, the flares that you buy at Walmart or at Tesco's or something, those are not proper flares. Other flares, better flares are available. We'll get into that. But if you've got, uh, looking at this list already, if you've got a first mate, you've got someone who can succeed you, or you've got a plan as to how you're going to get this solo boat to stop, if you've got your life jacket on 
uh, uh, harness or safety lanyard built into it, part of it, and flares, you've got a lot of the equipment that you need to get out a number of the circumstances that can happen when you're at sea. Just after that is the life raft. Of course, the life raft has this weird kind of position for, um, cru- I don't want to say cruising sailors, but like new sailors or sailors that haven't given much attention to safety gear in the past. The life raft sort of exists in this box on the back of the boat. It's super expensive. Um, you, it may or may not be in service for some boats. Uh, it may or may not be an understood piece of equipment, like exactly how do you launch the life raft? Exactly how is the stuff packed inside it? What exactly is inside it, as this is going to be all of the life-saving gear you've got once you leave the main boat. How visible is it? How stable is it? What's it like to be in a life raft for long periods of time? What are the the pitfalls? What are the things you could learn? The life raft can preserve life. It's another life-preserving piece of equipment. Incorrectly operated, it can have already chafed up against the side of the boat and been punctured within the first hour operation, and that's off the cards. It is definitely not some kind of like space capsule emergency escape pod like star trek where you just get in there and it sorts everything else out for you it's a very specific piece of equipment with minimal amount of gear to preserve life there are very low standards that you'll be willing to accept just to allow your life to be preserved you can go without water for a long time without food for a long time without shelter for a long time very cold or very hot conditions terrible pressure sores terrible salt sores That is how it will preserve your life. You're not going to come waltzing off your life raft in a tuxedo or ball gown with a glass of champagne and sparkling conversation. You're going to be dragged. Whatever's left of you is going to be dragged out and that will be either alive or dead if it's an extreme life raft survival situation. It sits there on the back of the boat or wherever you keep it. It's a little plastic box or a bag that may be a mystery to you or it may be a known piece of equipment. If what's in your life raft is a bit of a mystery to you, there's something that's really easy to do. Firstly, go and have a look at the service date on it. That is going to be something you put into your appointments and you're going to go with the life raft to the place where it's serviced and watch them open it and watch all the kit come out and see what's in there. And then when it all gets packed back together again, you've spent a couple of hours with the people that do this all the time. You've discussed what life rafts are about and it goes back and sits on the boat. How do you think you're going to view it then? Do you think you're going to say, oh, well, if the boat sinks, I'm going to get in the life raft. I think after you've seen what it is, after you've talked to professionals, you've seen the equipment on board, you're going to realize that the boat, the boat itself, that's your major life preserver. If you're getting in the life raft, yeah, that's not really a holiday destination. That is an absolute last minute resort. So let's continue down the list here. Life rafts, I think we've gone through that. Go and have them unpacked and repacked in front of you oh and the good thing there of course is that if you do that if you have any medicines you have to take if there's glasses you need to wear you can get those packed in you can get quite a lot of things packed into your life raft depending on how much space is in it most life rafts are all the same the aviation ones are very very light materials the um, solas level ones which are um, military spec hyperlon very very thick strong they're packed in a lot more tightly um, but depending on how much equipment's going into it you have got the opportunity to um, put some extra gear in there um, the aviation life rafts it because the valises and the canisters are so small on them you may find it's a bit tricky but uh, yeah you can always get some glasses or something in okay further down the list here we're still on uh, page seven here um, grab bag 
Um, as it says next to it, where is it? Also other items such as water and food exactly. The grab bag is your go-to in the event of having to go over the side of the boat. This is a pre-packed bag. If you've ever had kids and you've got that bag packed that uh, whisks you off to the airport. Um, I went through this recently uh, when Isaac was born. We had got everything organized and we actually had a, a home birth. The midwives came to the house. They were absolutely brilliant. We had a, a doula called Wanda here. She was fantastic. Really, it went perfectly. But as my partner started to go into labor, I realized the one thing I hadn't done is packed the bag to take us to the hospital. Now I've packed thousands of bags for trips, voyages, and all the stuff over my lifetime. I'm a pretty smart chap. Um, I knew also that uh, it wasn't that far to the hospital, so I only had to have the basics because uh, if I missed anything, well, just come on back, right? It's only 15 minutes. And yet, as she was downstairs starting to you know, get into the first uh, stages of active labor, I'm upstairs on my knees on the floor packing this bag. And afterwards, she came down, like a couple of weeks later, she came down. She said, I unpacked the bag that you packed for me on the night that Isaac was born. She said it was so sweet. I said, well, that was not quite the effect I was looking for. I was looking for it was so brilliantly packed. Well, I kind of packed everything apart from I hadn't packed any, uh, anything at all for my partner to wear on her lower half, apart from like some knickers and some tights. Um, I put some Tums in, like kind of if you're in the UK, but like Rene, like indigestion tablets, but having kind of not really a, too much of a brain to think of it for a second. I just put like a handful of them into the bag, like thrown in with the clothing. Um, I had put a roll of toilet roll in there, like they wouldn't have toilet roll in a hospital. Like there were things missing, there were unnecessary additions, there were weird choices. And that's someone who really knows, you know, how to, how to, how to pack a bag right now. Imagine you're going off the boat. You've got to this point where you've decided, um, okay, this water is so deep that I think that in a second, the free surface effect of this is going to start to affect the stability of the boat. We better get off this boat. Fantastic. Great. So you know where the life raft is? Brilliant. What are you taking with you? Well, the stuff in this book is going to really help you out with some great ideas there. And there's some very standard packing lists for grab bags. But God help you if you are trying to then run around and pack stuff into the grab bag. There are minimums that need to be in the grab bag, and we're going to go through that later on here. But there's also some additions. There's water, there's medicine, there's um, the glasses, the things that we just mentioned. There's, what about you know, mementos? Is there like a little bag inside there that reminds you to grab your digital camera? I remember I was the... Um, the skipper that came in behind Cork Clipper. Cork Clipper was lost on Gosan Mampanga Reef in the Clipper Around the World race in 19, uh, sorry, in 2010. And uh, I was on one of the vessels that came in behind and it fell to me to go onto the boat and start to get as much of the cruise equipment off as possible. It was just a very low lying reef, no more than three feet above the water, very difficult to get ashore. Everything was not where it was meant to be, i.e. the island itself was half a mile out from where it was shown on the chart, which made it impossible to approach. We got there, we got onto the boat, the crew all got off safely, they were off on other vessels, we were there on our own, and we suddenly had to go round and start picking up. We thought this is going to be the only time we get to come onto this boat, and then it's going to be ransacked by, you know, fishermen and, and, and people that are just live in that area. We have to go, we won't be able to get this stuff. We ended up having to go like through everybody's bags and getting their passports and getting their um, their pictures and their cameras. And you think, you know, the difference for those folks when we arrived finally in Singapore and we got all their safety gear and we got all, sorry, we got all of their sentimental stuff, it was so important. 
and yet um, potentially on your boat if you've got a grab bag and inside the grab bag is a, a roll bag a red roll bag or something which has photos or personal documents written on it in that moment you can remember okay I gotta go and get those you should have in there all the cruise passports if you're offshore already placed inside it the grab bag is the place that you go to when you've made the decision that you're preparing to abandon ship. It's going to have a lot of safety gear in it, but it can have other things, potentially counterintuitive things that could really help you out. If you read something like 77 Days Adrift by Steve Callahan, there's a bit within that where he seals a rupture on the side of the life raft with a cork and a fork. He puts the cork in, he puts some string around it, and then he pins it all together with a, a fork. Now, do you have to take a fork with you? No, that's okay. Don't worry about that. But you might take other things which might be able to help you because the life raft uh, gluing and patching system that's inside the life raft says make sure surfaces are clean and dry. So you're gonna have to come up with something else. So the grab bag should be there. It's your little mate that's sitting there all the time ready to go with all the things that your sane, sensible head has uh, has thought about in a moment of clarity rather than when the water's lapping up around your nuts somewhere. Okay, uh, what else we got on this list? Uh, we're still going down the list on page seven of the book. Um, onboard hazards. Okay, so this is part of our safety brief checklist. If we're giving a briefing to folks all about what's going on on board the boat, we're gonna go through a lot of the safety gear that's on board. Um, it can become repetitious because of that, because you're forever repeating the same things. But also you're gonna be telling people like, where are the hazards on this boat? It might be the boom, it might be some obstacle that's on the side deck, it may be coming up and down the companionway, which by the way, statistically is still the most likely place that someone's gonna get hurt on the boat is falling down the companionway, absolutely. So during your safety brief, you go through, say, what's your succession plan? Who's gonna be the first mate? Life jackets, check the condition, show all the different uh, features of it and show how to don and inflate the life jacket. Talk about the harness system within the life jacket and uh, show people safety tethers and where it clips on, jacks the hard points and the jack lines on the deck. Go through the flares, what they're for, how they work. The flares we'll get to later on, but you know, if you take one the little thing out of today is you need to read what it says on the side of the flares. You need to understand it and you need to know it. You, you can't be reading it like as you're trying to launch it, you're gonna make a mistake. And uh, I've seen people with badly burnt hands um, who didn't need to have them. They were already in the middle of an emergency. Um, the life raft, where it is, how it's stowed, what's inside it. And for your own point of view, like, do you have the correct attitude to the life raft? You know what that represents. It, it's not like some other cruising option that you're carrying along with you. The grab bag, certainly the center point of going over the side of the boat. It's got to have the basics in. It's got to have things that are idiosyncratic to you. But it's also going to have those somewhat counterintuitive things that could really make the difference. Um, safety break checklist then. Onboard hazards your anchoring procedure, how to start the engine, then the life boy or the Dan boy. The life boy is that man overboard pole. We'll, we'll come to this later on, of course, all these things are gonna be expanded out later on. But the it, when you're getting further away from someone who's in the water, we've talked about this when we talked about man overboard in one of the other podcasts. Um, they're hydraulically locked into the water and only their life jacket and their head and their spray hood are showing above the surface of the water. That might be as little as 12 or 14 inches of stuff sticking out of the ocean that shows you where this person is. Hopefully they've got a light going, hopefully they've got retroflective tape. But if you can put something into the water which is much taller with a flag on it, with retroflective tape, maybe potentially even with an AIS transponder on it, suddenly you've got this 
the center point of the universe. They went in near this thing. It's also hydraulically locked in. And if you can get it over the side within a couple of seconds, you're not going to lose the idea of where the person is in the water. During the um, experience I had over the weekend uh, learning uh, safety at sea in a, in a classroom setting, we were shown a, a track from, um, let me get this right, I think it was people sailing around the world in a double-handed class 40 race and his mate went over no he came on deck and his mate wasn't there so he immediately turned around and started looking for like where his friend would be but you could see that the track had been laid down on a computer-based chart plotter called Adrena so you could see different colors for different speeds on the track and you could see where it was afterwards they had marked you know where he likely came off and the the boat at the time was heading uh, up to the northeast it was in the southern ocean somewhere but it's going up to the northeast the person who was doing the search god help them you know they're just like freaking out they ended up searching further to the northeast over to the northwest when the person that they had uh, uh, lost was actually back down their track to the southwest of where they were looking that person then drifted over time with the current and uh, was picked up like a number of miles to the south east of where they went into the water so our boat is looking in the northeast and the northwest meanwhile the person started in the southwest and drifted to the southeast thank god they hooked up with each other afterwards but if there's a man overboard pole that can go in there great the thing about man overboard poles is that they've got a big float in the middle a weight on the bottom and then about six foot of plastic tubing above with a an oscar flag the man overboard flag the yellow and red Oscar flag, the signaling flag for O, which indicates man overboard, that unit is then going to sit somewhere on the back of the boat. And it's going to be kind of tricky. What you normally do is get like a piece of four inch PVC pipe, zip tie or secure it onto the push pit at the back, one of the uprights. And then you put the damn boy's weight into that. The, the float will be somewhere about the height of the guardrails. You put some elastic on it somehow so it's secured. And then that thing just sticks up like a giant antenna, like you've got a chopper bike from the 1970s with a flag out the back. It just sits there on the back of the boat. And obviously a lot of people feel that's not a great look and you may only ever use it once in your life. So the tendency is to kind of, well, let's leave that inside and let's, you know, it, it becomes not so useful. There's a company in the UK, uh, they're called uh, John Boy, and they make a unit which um, is an inflatable unit that goes into the water. They've got a couple of different models, a smaller one and a bigger one, but essentially there's a unit attached to the push bit of the boat. You pull on an elastic, it drops into the water, and it inflates, giving a six-foot-high yellow pole, inflated pole, with the flag on it, with retroflective tape and a light and, um, and a weight, and then it will sit there and mark the location of your person. Recently, I've just got another one, which is another inflatable Dan Boy uh, unit. It's made by a company called, I think, SOS in, in, in Australia. And um, it's a unit which you throw over the side. It's got like a little package you put on the push pit. And then it's got like a heavy handbag, I guess is the best way of putting it. Like it weighs like, I don't know, five or six pounds, something like that. And I'm preferring that because with the John Boy and the Dan Boy, the, you're going to basically undo that clip and then it's just going to fall in the the wake behind but you know if you can circle back around to the person you've got this opportunity to throw that thing really close to them they can use it a little bit of a um, uh, little bit of uh, buoyancy for them or just to get it a little closer so it's not in the track of the boat so you just undo the packaging grab hold of the thing and then sling it over the side it automatically inflates and then you've got that six foot high man overboard pole so um, life boys or dan boys very very useful we'll come back to that later on we're just going to go through this uh, safety brief checklist and i think i'll probably be 
enough for today. Look, this is going to take a while to go through, and I've been thinking about it overnight because I'm on the second part of recording this now. And um, I'm just going to keep rolling through this nice and slowly. I was going to do it where I do one episode and do one chapter, but if the chapter's taking more than one episode to discuss, like, are you in a rush? Because <laughs> I'm not. So I can just do however much I want to do of chapter one, and then uh, we'll come back. So we'll finish this checklist, which is on page seven. And of course, we're in the ROA Sea Survival Handbook here. And uh, we'll finish page seven, and then we'll, we'll knock, it, uh, knock it on the head for the day. We'll come back later. Okay, VHF, radio, mayday, and DSC procedures. So when you do your safety brief checklist, we have all of this modern equipment. This, the problem is, if you're the only one who knows how to use it, um, it ain't going to be much good if you fall in the water. And if you're the only one that uses it, that means that that's what you'll be doing in the middle of the emergency. But if you're on the kind of boat where you're the only one that knows how to use the equipment, you're probably also the only one that can maneuver the boat, helm the boat, start the motor, all that kind of stuff. So you've got to share this information out. You know, people coming on board, they love to know all this stuff. They love to feel that um, they know what's going on around them. And I will say that my experience, people end up a lot less seasick if you start talking to them about safety, if you explain how you know the ultimate um, stability of the boat works and the weight down the bottom and this is the gear and this is what we're going to do and you they suddenly start to glimpse your professionalism. You know, if you think about the word amateur means to love something, okay? So if you're an amateur and you love something, you can really get behind it. Professionals also love what they do, but they drive that love to the point where they actually do it every day. And I know that the trope is that professionals are like jaded and they're just doing it for the cash and all the rest of it. But really, they have to have stepped beyond that to, to be in a career for a long time. How do you as the amateur appear most professional? You've got you've to love what it is that's you know, makes up the boat. If, if this is the safety gear and this is going to save us, show it to people, explain it to people. If you don't know exactly how it works, just say, look, I don't know. Let's look it up. We've got the, the phone. We've got YouTube. Like, how does this thing work? What's the best way of doing it? Um, never underestimate the power of just saying, I, I don't know, because then it opens up the possibility to go and learn. It's not that you have to then go and learn. It's that you get to go and learn. And of course, with all safety gear, that can end up being the difference between life and death. So something like um, the VHF, Radio Mayday and DSC, we'll be talking about that later on, Digital Selective Calling Procedures, that can just be written. There's a, a little card that you could buy that goes next to the VHF. It's got the standardized Mayday procedure written onto it and you add in the name of your boat and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's not going to take five minutes to explain that to someone. If they just know they can go down and press a button and send a coded message to say there's somebody in the water, I think you're going to really appreciate that you took the time to give that safety briefing if you're the one in the water. Okay, next is the emergency position indicating radio beacon or EPIRB and personal locator beacons. Again, we have all of this equipment now. We have these uh, little beacons that can float out or be or be put over the side from the life raft into the water and they will send your GPS position to a satellite which will then relay that to a joint services coordination center who's going to be able to um, coordinate the various uh, units which are going to be coming out hopefully to save you either airplanes or helicopters or ships or all of the above that technology will go into a little bit later on it's on board the boat it's absolutely essential that it gets transferred to the grab bag if you're going over the side um, or that people know how it floats through or whatever the situation is with your EPUB. But again, you cannot be teaching this to people as you're going over the side of the boat. 
Um, God help you if you forget to take it with you in the grab bag if you haven't got that already lined up. Um, but it's there, it's a piece of equipment, and if you're not willing to share your knowledge about it with other people, the question has to be, do you really know how this thing works, or are you worried about um, people catching you out and not uh, being able to answer their questions? Um, GPS, uh, how to read off a position. If you're doing something with a uh, VHF unit and you're sending a Mayday, um, it's gonna be very essential to uh, know how to give the GPS position. Um, again, somebody who's just coming on board, they may not know about GPS, they may not know about sailing, but they probably know about like numbers and they can probably take a number and write it on the chart table. Even if you've got um, a permanent pen, which hangs all the time by the side of the VHF, in the event of going over the side, just tell people write this number on the wall next to the VHF. And then it's, you know, don't worry about your electronic methods, don't worry about anything else. That uh, GPS unit has to be able to be useful to you other than I wonder where I am at the moment. And the point when it becomes useful is man overboard or if you've got some kind of issue that you need to report in or a mayday or whatever it is, um, you have to be able to pull a, uh, a position off there. The next thing on the checklist here, safety brief checklist, is the man overboard button. Um, we now have, of course, all these electronic methods of recording somebody going into the water. We have them on chart plotters, we have them on the uh, VHF, we have them on SSB, your single sideband unit. You may even have things on a, a, an app that's on your phone, all sorts of things. What are they? How do they work? They can really be the difference between life and death. And remember that, you know, unless you're on a very, very fast boat, someone goes over the side, you do actually have a couple of minutes to react. You've got... Uh, things that you need to do in the here and now, like crash tag, stop the boat. There's things that are gonna be going on, but not necessarily every member of the crew is gonna be doing those things. If someone has also got a chart on their phone in their pocket on Navionics, do they know how to do the, put a waypoint on that? Because that could be the thing that really helps out when you know the water slops over the side, goes down the companionway, and then the GPS turns off, or whatever's the crazy situation that you're in, do they know how to get a GPS um, uh, position off the unit? Do they know how to indicate a man overboard electronically with the gear that's on board? Can you give them a few tools that allow them to innovate in new ways with the equipment that they've got or how they see fit? Unless you're taking fools out sailing, these people are probably quite intelligent and have got their own ways that might be able to help out. It's a boat, someone's in the water, they might have a good idea as to how they can help you mark that position. Give them what you can to, to, uh, you know, to help, to, to help get as much knowledge to bear as possible. Someone's in the water. Someone's gonna die if we don't find them. If Roger has you know, put it into his uh, uh, iPhone as well, is it less legitimate? No, it's fantastic. If he's realized that there's a button on a chart plot that you can press to mark things electronically, and then he knows, oh, I could do that on my phone as well, suddenly Roger becomes very, very useful. Um, next thing on the list is man overboard recovery equipment, where and how to use it. Getting somebody back onto the boat, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on, is very difficult. It's much harder than you think. Um, if you've ever had to deal with an adult who is completely unresponsive through illness or um, through you know drunkenness or whatever else it is, if they're helping you a little bit, you can get them up off the seat quite easily. When you are trying to get somebody up out of a seat and they are just dead weight, it's very hard. Now imagine that you're lying on your tummy or you're you know next to the guardrails on a boat and they're two or three feet below you and they're wet and they're slippery and the boat's moving and they're heaving up and down with the waves and there's a life jacket in there and trying to drag them up, even if it's someone who's like 150 pounds, 
can be very difficult. You're probably going to need to have something which you can roll them into and roll them onto the deck or something you put under their arms and legs and lift them out of the water. But watch your method. Because if you get on a boat with somebody and the skipper's idea of how to get somebody out of the water is we're going to drag them out of the water. Um, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Bilge pumps. We'll talk about bilge pumps later on some more. Where they are and how to use them is a completely legitimate thing to say to people that are on the boat, particularly the manual ones. There should be one in the cockpit. There should be one that um, is down below. If you don't tell them anything else, where are the buttons for the bilge pumps? Um, how much water is normal inside your boat? Obviously, some race boats, you've got a bit of water slopping around all the time. Other boats, it's totally dry. Um, they need to know how to do it because what are you going to do? Like take them down below and show them in the event of emergency like you'll probably be busy with other stuff first aid kit um and where it's kept what's in it can just be a quick note but what's in the light in the first aid kit needs to be um, sealed in bags it needs to be um uh, itemized you need to know what you've got and i would suggest for anybody you need to have the ship's captain's medical manual which is the one that's used by commercial ships and the benefit of that is that if you do end up in a situation where someone gets hurt, um, you can have all kinds of first aid manuals. That's that's great. But the other resource we have these days is that your phone or a satellite phone can be used to connect to a shoreside establishment, medical establishment. You can speak to somebody there. And if that establishment has got any maritime links at all, which you'd think it was if you're being put through by the Coast Guard or by the um uh, National Lifeboat Institute or something, they're going to have a copy of the ship's captain's medical manual. And they'll say, turn to page 30. You turn to page 30. Does it look like this? Does it look like that? Okay, go to the table on page 52. Does it look at like line three? You can suddenly have this shared resource. So there's all kinds of different first aid manuals out there for boats, laminated, this, that, and the other. The one you want, ship's captain's medical. It's an MCA, a Marine Coast Guard Authority in the UK publication. Fire extinguishers. Um, everybody has fire extinguishers around them at work, at home. Not that many people have actually used them in anger. You even just pulled the pin, probably, you know, pranking at college or something is about as close as you get. If you haven't ever fought a fire with a fire extinguisher, now's a good time. If you have any old fire extinguishers in the house, go and read what's on the side of it and go outside into the garden or the yard or somewhere where there's absolutely no chance of a fire spreading. And then in a little bucket or something, get a little fire going with some uh, wooden sticks with some carbonaceous items, some little bits of paper, or what have you, and then blast it out with the, um, with the fire extinguisher. Get a feel for how it kicks back, how much stuff comes out. Is it choking powder? Is it you know, a foam? Is it watery? Is it a gas? Is it cold? Just operate it and see what's what. And then have a look at the numbers on the side of the fire extinguisher. You'll see that it has A, B, and C, and D maybe on some written on the side of it. That's for different types of fire. And it'll have a number before the A and before the B and maybe the C as well, depending on what you've got. And it's how many sticks on a standardized fire that they create will this fire extinguisher put out. So if you have like 3A fire extinguisher, it'll blow out the flames or, or smother or or certainly extinguish the flames of three little standardized sticks in the standard fire extinguisher experiment. If it's 50A, then you know, hey, well, there's a lot more stuff going on inside this. But then you can have a look at what it'll also do on a type B fire and a type C fire. That's electrical fires and fuel fires. Um, how effective is the fire extinguisher you've got? 
Does it work on a oil fire? Does it work on electricity? Or is the electricity going to come back up the fluid in the fire extinguisher and zap you? These are things to look at and know. Um, but discharging fire extinguishers is a very messy business. It's good that other people know that uh, what you're doing as you might give them a bit of a shock when they see you running around with a fire extinguisher. You have to make sure there's no chance at all of the fire spreading. You need to have a hose standing by or a watering can or something so you know you can put the fire out. And of course, um, be very cautious about embers moving around all the rest of it. But you do have to practice this at some point. People don't realize how fast uh, fire travels. They don't realize how hot it is next to a fire. They don't realize the smoke and the uh, way it gets into your eyes and your lungs and all the rest of it. If you're inside a little boat, you've got all those issues and you've got the other issue of the fact that it may become too choking for you to go into that environment and actually deal with the fire or that the fire itself will drive you to the life raft. So having some experience with this, showing people the fire extinguishers, how much better to say to somebody, ah, here's our fire extinguisher. I've actually used this one before. It's, you know, it's out of um, out of date uh, old mate. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It kind of kicks and uh, there's a big plume of, uh, you know, white powder comes out, whatever it is. Get to know the equipment. Most people who don't want to do a safety brief before a boat leaves the dock is because they're embarrassed to kind of show what they don't know. They're, they don't know the equipment themselves. They're embarrassed by the equipment or they know full well a lot of it's missing. There's normally something in there if someone won't take 20 minutes to explain to other human beings how you stay safe in this device which is going to take them out on, into an alien environment. Okay, let's get down on our list here. Um, Medicines, absolutely. Uh, talk to the people that are coming on your boat. Are they taking any medication? Um, the seasickness tablets they're taking, have they taken them before? Are the counterindications between their seasickness tablets and their normal medication? Um, have they got any issues with their heart? Uh, you need to understand that just a little bit. You can't delve in too far, obviously, but it's very worthwhile just saying to people, if you've got anything medical which you think could affect your you know, your ability to enjoy the day, just give me a shout. It's in confidence, but I do need to know because if something happens, we've got a situation out here where things that are just, you know, oh, I'll just call the ambulance and let's nip into hospital or I'll just get in the car and go down to the doctor and see what he says. It's suddenly going to come a trip in a helicopter. Um, so you're yeah, asking people about their medication. Also, of course, in that one is um, any um, uh, food allergies they've got. You know, you don't want to serve something nice up as a canapé for lunch and then discover that someone's uh, allergic to shellfish and you've got a medical emergency on your hand. Clothing. Okay, I've got, um, I'm going to go into that later on. I can see the other lovely um, uh, illustrations that come in our section too. I've also got uh, a video from the Mariner series, which I'll be able to link you to there. We're going to talk quite a bit about clothing. It is the distance, uh, the difference between um, feeling good at sea and uh, feeling really quite crappy and, uh, and and very much in a kind of like uh, under attack. You know, if, you're, if the elements are attacking you, you're cold, you're wet, you can't get yourself into a comfy situation, it starts to fatigue you, mentally fatigue you, and that's when um, accidents start to slip in. It can be the difference between your kids enjoying going out on the boat, your friends wanting to come back a second time. You can always tempt them out one time, but when they realize what sailing is actually about, they probably want to come, won't want to come a second time unless your cruising is in the Caribbean and uh, you know <laughs> your boat's in great condition. They're going to end up uh, thinking, oh, this is not that much cop, but you can definitely help yourself by giving your guests advice on the clothing they should bring and uh, keep it all super um, comfortable for them while they're at sea. Uh, last couple of things here on the safety brief checklist on page seven of the RYA Sea Survival Handbook. Um, look out. Um, tell me what you see in here. I may not have seen or heard it, it says in the book. You're the skipper. You're the person in charge, whatever it is. But there are other intelligent human beings there. They go below. They go to the heads. 
There's a funny smell. There's a funny noise. There's uh, some red fluid drifting its way across the work surface in the forepeak. Like, who knows what it's going to be, right? But it could be something super important. It could be absolutely nothing at all. But if you're very positive with people, accept the things that they tell you. Say, yeah, I've got that. No problem at all. Or just go and look at it. Suddenly, you've got this other resource. You've got these intelligent humans who are there with you who are going to help you stay on top of a, you know, a complex situation. Last couple here. Passage plan. Um, Tell people about your passage plan, where you're going, what you're going to do, what are the contingencies, where are the shoal points, where's the rocks, all that kind of stuff. It's easy to make a, st- a mistake, particularly when you've got uh, guests on board and you're focusing on their uh, well-being. If you've told them like, hey, yeah, we're going to come up here and then we'll be taking a, a hard uh, you know, change of course to, to port when we get to the red marker and they're going to help you with that. They're going to be much more willing to engage in what's happening. And again, in terms of seasickness, if they have higher functions going on, that they know what's going on around them, the victim mentality sort of drifts away. They know where we're going. We're going down the shore here. Then we've got that red boy. Then we're turning here. Then we're going to go up there and anchor. And they can see what's going on around them. They feel connected to it. They feel that you're being professional with what you're doing. And they're much more likely, in my experience, to kind of like, take some deeper breaths and start to relax a little bit into it. We'll be talking about seasickness, no doubt, as we go along. It's a big aspect of uh, safety at sea because it can be so debilitating, but there are some odd ways that you can really help out with it, which are nothing to do with drugs and nothing to do with the, the weather. It's just how a skipper makes somebody feel can really affect how the outcome is for seasickness. Watch rotor. Whenever I do races with um, folks who do a lot of club racing, they always jump on board and despite whatever I've said, they will be up and awake early in the morning. We do the start line at 10, 11, 12, whatever that is. And then they're on all afternoon and then they're on all evening because they're totally in love with what's happening, of course. And about 10 or 11, they all start dropping like flies. And of course, at that point, they are then a liability rather than an asset to have on the deck. Super tired people who don't really know what's going on um, are not like your best crew. You've got to have a watch rotor. If you're going to be out for even more than like five hours, I would say, you want to be working out who's going to take a rest here it might just be hey you just go down for an hour but then explain you're going to have your gear on or you're going to have your gear off or you get inside your sleeping bag or just huddle down on the sofa or whatever it is but just explain what's going to happen so you've got fresh people available if anything goes wrong last couple here can they swim very very simple obviously if you were uh, in the navy 500 years ago you wouldn't be expected to swim they didn't want to teach you to swim because you might escape off the boat but Knowing whether people can swim or not can be an essential aspect of uh, your safety uh, training for the day because there may be somebody who's there who can solve problems underwater on the boat. There may be somebody for whom uh, going over the side of the boat is a major fear and they can be much more nervous of the water than you can expect. You could have an Olympic swimmer who's the person that you put into the water to go and get a man overboard who you've been unable to bring the boat to for whatever reason. Like, I don't know, but more importantly, you don't know unless you ask. Um, I'm always very, very cagey about people going over the side of boats, regardless of the situation, because I don't really do any kind of cruising or anything like that. It's always racing. It's always kind of commercial. And we have these boats with very tall freeboards. So I'm always on the back foot about it. I can tell some stories about uh, crew uh, offshore saying to me that we we really want to go in the water. We're becalmed. We want to have a nice morning swim and freshen up and like, okay, if you really want to, let's do it. And then as they jump over the side of the boat, I go to look at the log for the first time since I've woken up and discover that three hours earlier, they were writing in the log, shark sighted. 
Um, people don't always make uh, the most rational decisions when it comes to swimming. Um, it's a, an area where a lot of people get injured. So I'm, I say I'm on the back foot, but I realize that for a lot of people, going into the water is a very, very pleasant part of being on the boat. But show them how the boarding ladder works. Show them the fact that if you don't have this boarding ladder, you can't get onto this boat. It's not possible to get up the sides of this 40-footer unless you come to this area of the boat or this ladder's already down. Good things to know. And of course, a resource potentially in a, a life and death situation. Um, last at the bottom, medical or physical problems. We live in a world now which has gone a bit crazy with woke. We're, we're kind of maybe the, the wrecking ball is swinging the other way now and we'll uh, start to get back to some kind of normality. But people have got their own particular situation. They may or may not want to share it with you. But going out onto the water, if you're the person in charge, you have an ultimate responsibility to them that far transcends what most people are involved in from day to day. They don't realize that if you're far offshore, the captain's word is law that it is absolutely appropriate for you to say to them, what drugs are you taking? Can you swim? Can you do this? Can you do that? What's your, they, you need to know as much information as you can. Um, you know, it sounds kind of crazy, right? People are coming out your boat for the day, but what about a little check sheet? You just have a little card somewhere. You just ask them all the questions. I always look at this stuff and say, what would happen if I was in a court of law? How would I explain this? If you're in a court of law and the you, you're unfortunately on the, 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 the side that looks like something's gone wrong, that some kind of injury or damage has, has occurred or um, God help us a death or something. There's going to be people asking you questions who are professional witnesses and they're going to be professional mariners. That means that the person that comes and asks you questions about the incident that happened on your 35 or 40 foot boat and, you know, Roger, Roger got smacked in the head by the boom and now he's in hospital with a very serious uh, ongoing life threatening issue. In that case, the person that's going to be asking questions about that is a professional mariner who has a completely different way of going onto the sea than you. How much better to be able to say to them, well, this is the checklist that I use and I asked all the questions of them and um, I filmed the last couple of seconds when I said to them, are you happy with everything you've heard here? And then they say, right, well, he's, he's done more than we expected and definitely more than most people would do. Brilliant. You're totally covered, right? But what happens if they all come on board and then someone gets injured like is your insurance definitely going to cover it? Like how much? You're going to cover it to a million? About two million. What about if they've got to get their house completely renovated because now they've damaged their spine because they fell down the companionway and, you know, it goes crazy. And I'm not all about like trying to make every bit of sailing really, really hardcore and, and, uh, and difficult. But if you're on a boat that's going outside of land and you have all this safety gear on board, things that have like uh, flares and life rafts and life jackets and all this stuff, what do you think it's for? It's there to keep you safe. Luckily, we exist in a time now where a lot of the details have been worked out with this. We have satellite systems and GPS and all these incredible things we can buy to make ourselves safer. But if you're just kind of dawdling around, you've got it on the boat, but then you never tell anybody about it. You don't brief them. You don't do any paperwork related to that at all. A professional witness is going to look at you and say, you know, you might be calling yourself captain, but you're not really, are you? You're not really. Okay, so uh, what have we got at the bottom here? It's got a little VHF tip at the, at the bottom of uh, the page seven here, which is just saying what I was saying, which is that you can have the operating procedures for the radio um, on a prompt card next to the VHF so that uh, in the event of emergency, you don't have to try and work it out. I always say to people, think about it in the idea that you've got five seconds with the VHF before the batteries flood. What's the most important information you can give? Just met the word Mayday. Would be, if you could just get that out, at least everyone would know in this area somewhere someone's got a problem. If you could say Mayday and then the name of the boat, 
that would be awesome because then they'd know this boat. If you could say Mayday and then the name of the boat and then say roughly where you are, wow, a lot of people are going to be able to get towards you there. And if you could then say uh, Mayday and the name of the boat and where you are and what's the nature of it, then they might not be you know, coming to you to your boat, but they'll be looking in the water for your man overboard or they'll know to look for the smoke because you're on fire or look on the rocks rather than the patch of ocean because you've gone aground. So there's a kind of hierarchy of information you've got to give. There is a format for it, but there's also a logical progression to that, which is get the word Mayday out there. That stops all the other traffic on channel 16. Tell them the name of the boat. You do have to repeat that to do it in a proper fashion. And that's written down on the prompt card you can have next to the VHF set. But if a total newbie is able to grab hold of that unit and put it to their mouth and say, we've got a problem. This is the name of the boat. This is where we are. And this is what's going on. The, the life uh, saving services that uh, you're connecting with or the other vessels around you will probably be able to interpolate that. How much better, though, to take it away from being something that you have to freestyle and just have it written there. The other thing with all this slot as well, you know, is that the boat does look super cool once you've got all of the gear in place and it's all labeled up and it looks the part and you can walk around the boat going, yeah, that's that's better than it was. This is good. This is what about that? You can walk around trying to make everything 1% better all the time and end up at a really nice high plateau where you feel safer, you know what you've got on board, you know it's all in date, you know how to use it, you've told the people on board and get rid of that kind of like pit of your stomach feeling that a lot of sailors have, which is, do I actually know what I'm doing here? Should these people actually be putting me in charge of what's going on and looking to me for their safety? If you don't know this stuff, the answer to that question honestly is, no, they shouldn't. You're just pulling the wool over their eyes long enough that they do it without realizing the risk they're at. Wow, that was quite serious. <laughs> I, you know what there's some truth in it there's a lot of people like trucking around who are um who are just kind of making it up as they're going along they've got no training they've got no gear on board the boat it's just like ah, oh, the seal take me whenever you know it's like well don't go sailing with them there are other people who've got it but they yeah i know that that stuff's not quite right or it's a bit out of date or whatever just turn around face the problem and then get rid of that feeling in your stomach like something's always wrong in the background here. It starts with the safety gear on board the boat and um, it can make everything you do so much more pleasurable when you know that you've got these bases covered. So I'm going to try and get this one uh, uh, published here now. It's uh, an hour and 30 minutes, which is not too bad. We're still only just into chapter one. And just to remember, we are looking at the RYA Sea Survival Handbook. And I know you can buy that on Amazon or get it, of course, directly from rya.co.uk. It's beautifully illustrated. It's a good uh, size and weight to be something that you um, can you know, have, as we said, next to the toilet or on the boat. But what's within it is stuff that's there to help you. You have to have a positive uh, attitude towards safety gear. Um, I'm happy to um, throw in and uh, give you as many hours as required to um, you know, go through this stuff. If you've got any questions from today or questions from other aspects of this syllabus coming up or just things about safety at sea in general, write them to um, csmthemariner at gmail.com. I'll try and incorporate them into it. I'm going to get into this um, pretty hard over the next couple of days. We've got a lot to get through. I know that the Newport Bermuda race is setting off in just a, a couple of weeks now. We're going to be doing that with Spartan Ocean Racing. 
Um, have a look also at SpartanOceanRacing.com for opportunities to come and sail with us. We're going to be crossing the Atlantic this year. We're using our Maxi, 80-foot Maxi Osprey. The attitude on board the boat is relaxed, voyaging with an emphasis on seamanship training, safety training, and one-to-one -one contact with myself or the other professional skippers and crew that's on board. Spartan has done a lot of racing in the past. I'm trying to move more towards the uh, training and personal development side of things now. It gives me a lot of joy. I've got a lot of passion for for this stuff and I think it's a thing that you can take away take back to your boat and improve your own sailing and your own sailing situation with your family and friends and really you know increase your enjoyment of sailing so um, I'll dive into this there'll be quite a few of these in the next couple of days and then there'll be a, uh, a little uh, playlist that you can come to if you ever want to get into the details of sea survival certainly the course I did at the weekend was designed to be run through as quick as possible for professionals so they could get it done whilst also having received the um, the requisite amount of uh, instruction but at 1.5 to 2 days these courses which are a maximum 12 to 16 hours in the classroom there's so much to go over everybody's eyes are glazing over after the first couple of hours if we can do this in uh, an hour and a half bites maybe over time it'll just start to settle into your uh, your consciousness and, uh, and safety at sea and the equipment that makes that happen will be uh, a part of the sailing that you're on top of that would be my, my dream outcome in this situation but wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and not requiring uh, anything from inside the Sea Survival Handbook. And I shall come back to you with another little uh, insight into this book in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.